1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show, seven minutes after four o'clock. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing today. We'll talk with Miriam Neff. She's the author of "Not Alone: Eleven Inspiring Stories of Courageous Widows from the Bible." She is the founder and uh, director, uh, president rather, of Widow Connection. It's a nonprofit ministry, uh, and this uh, book is features eleven. Uh, widows from the scriptures from whom we can learn a great deal. Also later in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Rachel Gresler. She's a research fellow in economics, budget, and entitlement. We're going to talk about the delay in the GOP tax plan. It was uh, scheduled to be rolled out earlier today. It looks like it may be tomorrow, most likely next week. The uh, Senate is expecting their rollout uh, Wednesday of next week. We'll tell you What the status is on that. But first, I wanted to bring you the latest in the terror attack that left eight dead, several injured in New York City. The man accused of plowing into pedestrians there on Tuesday had a printout of an ISIS flag in his car. He left behind handwritten notes pledging his loyalty to the Islamic State as a clearer picture is emerging today. Uh, of uh, Sayfulo Saipov's alleged links to the terror group, the 29-year-old is originally from Uzbekistan. He's not a U.S. citizen, but he is in the country legally. His notes, written in Arabic and uh, and pledging loyalty to ISIS, turned up in the uh, near um, in and near the vehicle. Rather, in addition, the New York Post reported that investigators found an image of an ISIS flag inside the vehicle. We learned later that he wanted to fly them. Uh, On the vehicle, but thought that might draw too much attention to himself and divert from his intentions. The suspect had a green card. He came to the United States in 2010, and according to the Associated Press, has a Florida driver's license, uh, but said to be living in Patterson, New Jersey. Uh, It's also been reported that he is a long haul driver. He's also an Uber driver. He's uh, passed a background check with the company. They uh, added that. He has now been banned from the app and Uber has offered assistance to the FBI. Four of the injured were teachers and students who were riding on a short yellow bus near Um, uh, high school, when the uh, Stuyvesant High School, when they were hit by the suspect's Home Depot rental truck. One student remains in critical condition. One victim killed in the attack was a Belgian citizen. Belgian Deputy Prime Minister and Foreign Affairs Minister Dieter Renners uh, tweeted on Tuesday. Uh, Three Belgians were also injured. Others killed in the attack were Argentine citizens, according to Argentina's foreign ministry. The Argentine newspaper... Uh, reported that five of the eight people killed were Argentinians traveling to the United States on a a celebratory uh, vacation. Those killed, according to the country's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, um, were there for something of a uh, reunion. The attack was being uh, treated as an act of terrorism at a news conference uh, uh, yesterday evening. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio called the attack an act of terror and a particularly cowardly act. Uh, aimed at innocent civilians. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, he also described it as a lone wolf attack, although that uh, was not known at the time. They were uh, eventually looking for perhaps a second individual. They've um, uh, moved back from that and are convinced that this uh, individual is working on his own At that there was no immediate evidence to suggest that there was a wider plot. Around the globe, cities have been on high alert regarding vehicle attacks. ISIS has been encouraging its followers to mow down people and Britain, France, and Germany have all seen these kinds of attacks in recent months and years. FBI officials confirmed that they have agents responding to the situation with the New York Police Department. A bomb squad examined the truck but found no explosives. Acting Secretary of Homeland Security Elaine Duke said in a statement that the Department of Homeland Security and its law enforcement partners remain vigilant and committed to safeguarding the American people. Well, following the attack, President Trump tweeted, Looks like another attack by a very sick and deranged person. Law enforcement is following this closely. Not in the USA, all in caps. He later tweeted his thoughts, uh, condolences and prayers to the victims and families of the New York City terrorist attack. Uh, God and your country uh, are with you. Well, police and the uh, truck uh, entered the uh, the bike path, uh, rather police said the truck entered the bike path on West Street, a few blocks from the New World Trade Center, the site of the deadliest terror attack in U.S. history, and plowed into several people. The driver jumped out of his rental truck, which police say he had rented from Home Depot in New Jersey around 2 p.m. the same day, carrying what turned out to be a, a paintball gun and a pellet gun. Video of the attack provided by uh, Fox News by a witness, a rather. Uh, provided to Fox News by a witness um, of the accused suspect running through traffic on the West Side Highway, surrounded by police in the nearby area. And despite the attack, the city's Halloween parade went on as planned, by, with police dramatically increasing its presence, including personal blocker uh, personnel, blocker trucks, long guns, etc., according to the mayor's uh, press secretary. The governor um, and the mayor both attended the annual event. Uh, but had not originally intended to. Well, earlier today, federal prosecutors uh, held a press conference and said that the Uh, that uh, Sefoulo Saipov was consumed by hate and a twisted ideology when he ran down dozens of people on that New York City bike path, killing eight, injuring 12 others. The 29-year-old has now been charged with providing material support to a terrorist group and committing violence and destruction of motor vehicles in the attack, in which he drove a rented Home Depot truck down the path near the World Trade Center site. Law enforcement officials described the initial charge as holding charges, meaning that more are expected to be filed. Yeah. Saipoff appeared in the New York federal courthouse uh, this evening in a wheelchair. He was handcuffed uh, and his uh, feet were shackled. His lawyers said they were not uh, seeking bail and accused the accused did not enter a plea according to the judge. Uh, the next court date is set for the 15th of November. The complaint says Saipoff watched ISIS videos on his cell phone, picked Halloween for the attack on a bike lane in lower Manhattan because he knew more people would be out on the streets. Afterward, as he lay wounded in the hospital, he asked to display the ISIS flag in his room and stated that he felt good about what he had done, prosecutors said in court. A law enforcement source confirmed that uh, he had been interviewed in his hospital bed, described the suspect as cooperative. The source added that he had uh, not shown remorse for the attack, but stopped short of saying he had bragged about it. The FBI announced uh, later today that it was uh, seeking a second person of interest for questioning in relation to the attack, but later announced that that was no longer the case. Saipov left behind knives and a note handwritten in Arabic that included Islamic religious references and said it will endure, a phrase that commonly refers to ISIS, according to FBI agents in the court papers. When questioned, he said he had been inspired by ISIS videos, began plotting an attack about a year ago, deciding to use a truck about two months ago. Uh, He even rented a truck on the 22nd of October to practice Uh, making the turns necessary to achieve his objective. The deputy New York police commissioner for intelligence said he appears to have followed almost exactly to a T the instructions that ISIS had put out. In the past few years, they have exhorted followers online to use vehicles, knives and other close at hand means of killing people in their home countries. England, France and Germany, as I've mentioned, have all seen deadly vehicle attacks uh, since mid 2016. a November, 2016 issue, Of The group's online magazine detailed features that an attack uh, truck or van should have uh, suggested renting such a vehicle and other details, which I will not repeat. One of his neighbors uh, in Patterson, New Jersey, said that he had seen the suspect and two friends using the same model of rented truck several times in the past three weeks. It wasn't clear whether he had been uh, on authorities radar, although. Uh, there was some indication he might have been. Uh, he had never been the subject of a criminal investigation, but appears to have been linked to people who have been investigated. In the attack on Tuesday, he drove his uh, speeding truck for nearly a, a mile along that bike path, running down cyclists and pedestrians, then crashing into a school bus. Authorities said he was shot in the abdomen after he jumped out of the vehicle, brandishing two air guns, one of, in each hand and yelling uh, the phrase common to those who support ISIS. That's the latest on the uh, terror attack that occurred on Tuesday. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: We are back. Twenty one minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next two segments, we'll talk with Miriam Neff. Not alone. Eleven inspiring stories of courageous widows from the Bible. She's also the founder and president of an organization that ministers to widows here in this country and abroad. We've been talking about the New York City terror attack and the suspect that entered the United States, we now know, through a diversity visa program, which the president commented on earlier today, shining a spotlight on one way to enter the United States. Well, the diversity visa program is a State Department program. It offers a lottery for people from countries with few immigrants in the United States. It drew the ire of the president earlier today. Uh, He tweeted, the terrorist came into our country through what is called the diversity visa lottery program, a Chuck Schumer beauty. I want merit based. Uh, We are fighting hard for merit based immigration. No more Democrat lottery system. We must get much tougher and smarter. Well. It was a Chuck Schumer program, but it did have bipartisan support. Uh, the program makes up uh, to 50,000 immigrant visas available annually, uh, drawn from a random selection among all entries of individuals who are from countries with low rates of immigrate, uh, immigration to the United States, according to the U.S. Citizen and Immigration Services website. Applicants have to prove that they have a clean criminal record, have a high school diploma or its equivalent, or have at least two years of work experience within the past five years in order to qualify. The program originated as part of a bill introduced in 1990 by Senator Chuck Schumer then a member of the House, uh, Schumer's measure uh, to make a set number of visas available to diversity immigrants from certain countries was absorbed into larger House immigration bill, which was sponsored by uh, Schumer and 31 others, including several Republicans. The House legislation passed in a bipartisan but contested vote, 231-192, while the Senate version contained the diversity immigrants uh, immigrants uh, part passed more easily, 89-8, to and went on to be signed by then-President George Herbert Walker Bush in 1990. The program has been in the crosshairs of Congress several times, most recently when the Reforming America Immigration for Stronger Economy, or RAISE Act, sponsored by Senator Tom Cotton, uh, called for its elimination. The Trump White House came out in support of the bill, calling the uh, diversity um, the program. Outdated, adding it to serves a questionable economic and humanitarian interests Well, Schumer responded to the president's comments earlier today, calling on the president to rescind proposed cuts to vital anti-terrorism funding in his budget. I have always believed and continue to believe that immigration is good for America, the senator said in a statement. President Trump, instead of politicizing and dividing America, which he always seems to do at times of national tragedy, should be focusing on the real solution, anti-terrorism funding, which he proposed cutting in his most recent budget. Now, the interesting thing to me is when a tragedy strikes one side or the other takes advantage for lack of a better way of putting it during the last tragedy, the Democrats immediately called for gun control. The Republicans suggested that it was not the time to address that. It was a time for the nation to mourn. It was too soon to bring that up. And now in this situation, uh, you're seeing just the reverse happening. So politicizing an issue or talking about national security implications Uh, because it has political uh, ramifications, has become a very difficult thing to do in the United States when a tragedy has occurred, because everything has become so politicized, whether or not it's uh, timely or in the best interest of the country, no longer is the number one consideration. Well, as I mentioned, the uh, individual responsible for the New York City terror attack was from Uzbekistan. Most of us don't know much about the country in terms of its relationship to terrorism, but... Uh, I'm learning that Uzbekistan has become an increasingly important source of recruits for ISIS. The country of uh, origin of the man accused of carrying out the uh, deadly attack on Tuesday, the vehicle ramming attack in New York City, has become an increasingly important source of recruits to ISIS and other violent groups operating in Syria and Iraq in recent years. Former Soviet republics now account for the largest number of foreign fighters who have flowed into Syria and Iraq to fight for ISIS and other violent groups in recent years. According to a report last week by the Washington-based security consultancy uh, Sufan Group, the report put the number of foreign fighters from the former Soviet republics at 8,717, compared to 7,054 from the Middle East, 5,718 from Western Europe, and 5,319 from uh, Maghreb. Uh, by contrast, in December of 2015, Sufan Group report. Uh, found the former Soviet republics then accounting for only the fourth largest group of foreign fighters after the Middle East. Uh, maghreb and western europe of the 15 countries that were once part of the soviet union the new report describes uzbekistan rather the second largest number of foreign fighters with only russia itself supplying more uzbekistan is a strategically located country that's slightly bigger than california it's wedged between kazakhstan kyrgyzstan and tajikistan turks turkmenistan and afghanistan A formerly secular country, its 29 million people are 88% Muslim, 9% Eastern Orthodox. Uzbekistan was part of the Soviet Union from the early 1920s until independence in 1991. Uzbek is the main language, but many speak Russian, uh, of course. The Islamic movement of Uzbekistan has been active since the 90s, when it launched a violent campaign to establish an Islamic state in a large valley that spreads across eastern Uzbekistan and part of Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. For much of its existence, it's allied itself with uh, the Taliban and al-Qaeda, operating training bases in Afghanistan and collaborating closely with the Taliban in Afghanistan and Pakistan's tribal areas. But in mid-2015, they switched their allegiance to ISIS. Around that same time, ISIS launched a Russian-language propaganda channel. Uh, reflecting the greater importance of Russian speakers in the terrorist movement. One of Farat Media's earliest videos in uh, August of 2015 was an Uzbek-language clip extolling the IMU and, uh, and uh, urging Central Asians to join ISIS. Law enforcement officials told the Associated Press that the man who drove a rented pickup truck into pedestrians and cyclists in lower Manhattan on Tuesday... Uh, is uh, Uzbek, who moved to the country in 2010. He uh, was shot and wounded by a police officer and is in custody. He uh, had his first hearing today and was in a wheelchair to make that appearance. Uh, ISIS and al-Qaeda have both promoted vehicle ramming as a simple and yet effective way to kill, and the tactic has been used with deadly results over the past three years, especially in Israel and in Europe. And as I mentioned earlier, the president uh, took to Twitter to Um, uh, to uh, make the point that this must not be allowed, that ISIS um, must not be allowed to return or enter our country after defeating them in the Middle East and elsewhere. He also said that he had ordered the Department of Homeland Security to step up our already extreme vetting program, According to the the Department of Homeland Security, 3,977 people born in Uzbekistan were granted lawful permanent residence in the United States in fiscal year 2015, another 47,000 over the decade before that. And of course, we're talking about one individual, not the thousands who are here in the country, but that just gives some perspective. State Department refugee processing center data show that 35 Uzbeks were admitted into the United States as refugees this year. Uh, Most of them were Christians. So when you say Uzbek, You're not just talking about Muslims. You're talking about Orthodox Christians as well, again, to just give some uh, some context. Well, President Trump vowed today to scrap the federal immigration program that allowed the New York City terrorists to enter the United States. Speaking just before a cabinet meeting, he took a somber tone in the wake of the vicious attack that left eight dead and dozens hurt. In addition to vowing to end the State Department's diversity immigration visa program, which is how the suspect came to the United States in 2010, he called for a swift and harsh justice. We have, come, uh, we have come up with a punishment that much um, have to come up with a punishment that's much worse than what these criminals are getting now, the president said. He was asking Congress to end the diversity program. We have to come up with a punishment that uh, is much worse. And he even suggested um, a detention in a facility at Guantanamo Bay would require, at minimum, classifying him as an enemy combatant. Even then, the legality of such a move is not clear, as he was a lawful resident in the United States and no terrorist has been sent to Gitmo um under such circumstances so it might have uh, might have been an offhand comment but the president did say that he would consider if that were proposed that very thing he took uh, aim wednesday at the diversity immigration program as we've mentioned as well as others that allow chain migration in which immigrants can enter the country simply to be united with a relative already living here and he linked some 20 Uh, plus individuals linked to his immigration in the country. Again, the president making comments uh, following events of yesterday afternoon in New York. We're going to switch gears here in the next couple of segments. I'm looking forward to that. We're going to talk with Miriam Neff. She is the founder and uh, president of an organization that reaches out to widows here in the United States and abroad, uh, Widow Connection. She's most recently the author of Not Alone, 11 Inspiring Stories of Courageous Widows from the Bible. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: 35 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the loss of a loved one, whether it's a friend, a relative or a spouse, can leave a gaping hole in the heart that can feel impossible to fill. But God wants you to know, even if you have lost the person most dear to you and the pain feels unbearable, You are not alone. Well, the founder of the nonprofit ministry Widow Connection, Miriam Neff, she shares an essential message through the powerful testimonies of 11 women in the Bible in her latest book, Not Alone, 11 inspiring stories of courageous widows from the Bible. Many of the priceless jewels in this eternal book are found in the stories of courageous widows like Tamar and the widow of uh, Zarephath. Uh, Theirs and nine others are brought to narrative life in lyrical first-person prose that take readers deep inside these women's grief, strength, and faith. Their stories will strengthen your faith, shine a light into darkness, and will inspire and empower all readers. Well, Miriam Neff, as I mentioned, is the founder and president of Widow Connection, a nonprofit ministry, New Beginnings. Her one-minute radio feature is heard on over 1,200 outlets. She's a frequent radio interview guest, the sponsor of sewing projects for widows in Africa and Albania, a Bible study teacher and seminar and conference speaker. She's also the author of over 10 books, including Where Do I Go From Here? Bold Living After Change, From One Widow to Another, Conversations on the New You, and Shattering Our Assumptions. Miriam is the widow of Robert Neff, whom she married when she was 19 years old. She has four children, three grandchildren, and she joins us today to talk about her latest book, Not Alone, 11 Inspiring Stories of Courageous Widows of the Bible. Hey, thank you so much for joining us. So glad
3: to be with you. And as I hear you describing my life, I think I would have never guessed I would be doing what I'm doing today 20 years ago, I mean, there was a whole period of life I became a professional counselor. That was my profession. I raised children. I traveled the world with my husband. And at this stage of my life, I thought we'd be doing these things together, and Mm. that's not the case. 11 years ago, I became a widow, and most of the things you said about me are really new to my life. I mean, the, the thing of just knowing I am in a situation that I don't want and it's uncomfortable and I don't like it and it's not going to get better, that was where I was 11 years ago. And then God says, wait a minute, Miriam, I have a plan. You know, Philippians 1.6 says it's not over. (laughs) I'm going to keep you busy for me doing what I have planned for you. And reading these stories of these women in Scripture strengthened me a great deal, but also there's this instruction to care for widows. So basically, Mm -hmm. that's what we're doing in a lot of different ways.
2: Now, I want to make it clear early on that while the book uh, features the inspiring stories of uh, women who are widows, this book is not just for widows. I think there's a great deal to be learned by anyone who reads the book about um, their response to a very difficult circumstance uh, that applies to all of us. I have had guys
3: already who've read it and have said to me that it isn't uh, just for women and it isn't just for widows. But you know what? The scripture, when you have these stories, I mean, these stories like David and Goliath, that inspires everybody, and people have heard of that story. But the widow of Zarephath or Tamar, whom many think of her as a prostitute, not as a courageous widow, uh, when you really dig into their stories, and for the first time ever writing, I became first person and entered their home and smelled their bread cooking and just just really entered their life. I thought, wow, you know what? What God does with a person in a circumstance she didn't want, she didn't pick. And uh, many of them are pointed out as examples to all of us, like mm-hmm. the widow who gave two mites. I mean, God says, okay, look, pay attention to this person. And some of them are even nameless. And we think, oh, my, that means they're not important. Oh, no way. They are important. And it kind of encourages some of us who at times feel kind of nameless and unimportant, wait, you, what does God have for you to do? And that's where you want to get after it. And these women's stories well, I had some degree of courage before, but the deeper I delved into them, I thought, oh, my word, Lord, you're able to do so much more than I'd imagined. And you love me so much in this spot.
2: Now, you um, refer to widows as the singles in the church that no one is talking about. What can the church do to better understand the widows in within the congregation, within the community, and to care for them as the scripture quite clearly says we ought
3: well, for one thing, statistically, when a woman becomes a widow, within one year of that time, 50% of those women leave the church they were in with their husband. Hmm. So that tells you something's not happening here. And as you just said, Scripture says it, James one twenty seven says, Care for the orphans and widows. And I think we do better on the orphan thing than we do the widows. If we were doing it right, that wouldn't be happening. And I know from experience and from the many emails I get to the website and going and speaking to people and listening, that one of the things that happens is the connection is broken and nothing replaces it. We get that. You know, if we were serving with our husband, if our husband was a deacon or a pastor or whatever, and our role was defined by that, that goes away. But that doesn't mean that woman isn't precious to the body of believers And there needs to be a way that people continue reaching to her and for her to stay connected so that she should become, like Scripture shows us, we should be the most praying people in the church. We should be generous, even if maybe we aren't wealthy, although many widows are. In fact, a great deal of the wealth will be in the hands of widows within the next decade. So, you know, there are things that God has for us to do, but not if we're not there. And Widow Connection, you know what, Georgine? we're trying really hard to address that with our resources and things that we can do to help churches uh, step up.
2: Now, you write about 11 distinct individuals who were widowed in the course of their life, and their stories are included in Scripture that, as you pointed out, tells us there's something significant about uh, their story that we need to be focused on. Is there one among those you, you cover in the book that was surprising or really stood out to you?
3: Well, I will tell you, it's probably Tamar, and if you would say, okay, list the widows in Scripture, probably no one would say her name. You know, they'd list Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the widow of Zarephath, the widow of Pot of Oil, Anna, but Tamar, and there are three Tamars in Scripture, this would be the first one mentioned, who married two sons of Judah, was widowed twice, and one of the things that really touched my heart so deeply is that in some of the reference material, she's referred to as a prostitute. And she was not a prostitute. She had a distinct calling from God to bear a son. And there was this distinct way that women were to be able to bear a child. And if the son did not provide that child and then the brother did not provide that child it was a responsibility of the father-in-law the fact that she sat beside the road in her uh, in dressed like a prostitute in order for her to bear a son and then judah her father-in-law and it's 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 kind of an ugly story i won't Mm -hmm. go into more detail right now but she became pregnant was going to bear sons and judah said have her burned as a whore i mean the the person who impregnated her and then her story of courage i find just amazing i also have a heart for these misrepresented women because Bathsheba was and called in some reference books as an adulterer and that was simply not the case So, Georgine, you'll see that I see these women through my eyes as a widow, and I let just the Word of God speak. You know, don't put a a layer over it of what you think of women or what you think should be or whatever. Just let Scripture speak, and then get in that woman's life and imagine, you know, two men have died that she's been married to. She's been sent back to her dad's house. It's an insult um, and see. I mean, these women, that's why I say they have such courage, and they just inspired me greatly.
2: Mm. Yeah, these are not all women of, of a tremendous virtue, but they have something significant to, to say to us. Is there a favorite among them?
3: Favorite? Well, I would say Mary, the mother of Jesus, but that's such a stretch. I mean, she was just called to do something beyond what we can imagine. Uh, But I would say, too, that Abigail is a very respectable person, not widowed for very long, but even after she married David, which you'd think, okay, here's a good man she's married to, no longer Nabal, you know, the guy that drank too much and was surly and ill-mannered. But her life with David was not exactly so peaceful. You know, she was kidnapped, and he had way too many wives and concubines. I think, Georgine, one of the messages is, look at all these women. They didn't have this great circumstance. And, in fact, during their life, things didn't always get rosier. And I think that's the story where we say, okay, God really shows up big in any circumstance.
2: And we're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Miriam Neff. Her book is titled Not Alone, 11 Inspiring Stories of Courageous Widows from the Bible. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: 51 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Miriam Neff, she's the founder and president of Widow Connection. It's a nonprofit ministry. She uh, is the author, most recently, of Not Alone, 11 Inspiring Stories of Courageous Widows of the Bible, or from the Bible. Well, let's talk about the way these stories are presented, because you take some creative license in telling uh, their stories, but they are true to the biblical account.
3: Well, that's true, and I think my great interest in really Getting into these women's lives more was when I was in Africa, and I've been there, I think, ten times now. We train these young widows in the saleable skill of tailoring. And I teach them, I was teaching them these stories from the Bible so they would know how much God loved them. And I began to see how cross-cultural... The stories were from the Word of God. Here I am, a person in the Chicagoland area, you know, I have air conditioning, I have heating, I have food every day. They have very little of this, and yet the message in in the Bible with me telling them, I buried my husband, as did you, we had a bond there. But when I began to tell them about the widow and her pot of oil, and she had to borrow pots from other neighbors because that's what the prophet asked her to do. I'm thinking, what is this other woman thinking? The neighbor's like, "Okay, this poor widow is borrowing my pot. Why is she doing that? That's ridiculous. I'll probably not get it back. She's in poverty." You know, it's not I'm not going to do it. But then that neighbor did so. And then the miracle happened. These pots, many, many pots were filled with oil because of the miracle. She gave the empty pot then back to her neighbor, and from then on, that neighbor would pick up that pot and say, a miracle happened here, mm. a miracle with this piece of clay. And I began to kind of feel the clay and, you know, be in the neighborhood. And for the first time ever, I just let myself try to live in that person's life. And then uh, one that was one of the most difficult one was being Mary at the foot of the cross and looking up and seeing her son, who would, who could not have been recognized by what his body looked like, except she looked into his eyes, the eyes that had looked up to her nursing as a babe, you know, the eyes that had looked at her and it's his tiny fingers wrapped around her index finger. And, you know, you begin to see the the agony and the blessing and uh, just just the great compassion that God has for each person in every circumstance. And then Jesus saying to her what he said to take care of her because she was a widow, that John, his best friend and one who uh, loved him, would take care of her the rest of his life. And, you know, you can't help but kind of enter their world and see really what I saw more greatly was the heart of God, but I also think if in heaven I want to run around and just sit and listen to all of these women (laughs) if it's like that and I get to do it. But I hope that's what happens for anyone who reads it and that they just see the realness uh, of God in our lives. And then for maybe the person who's struggling that's listening that they say, oh, I'm not alone. I mean, look at that circumstance. Mine, Mine isn't that circumstance, but I'm not alone here. Or if you're in poverty, poverty's not going to define you. Or you know, if you think that you're just so lonely you can't uh, live a pure life, no, that's not going to define you. So that's one of the things I hope happens from the way I tell these stories. And I wouldn't—they really aren't fiction because these women are in the Bible. But it's true that my first-person living in their life does embellish their story.
2: Well, let's talk about who the 11 are. We've mentioned a few names, but who are these 11 that are mentioned in Scripture, who are widowed, and uh, give us examples of courage and industry and determination, resilience. Who are these 11?
3: Well, first of all, the widow who gave two coins is definitely generous, even though it's only two coins. And then the widow in her pot of oil, and we re- we referred to that briefly. I call her faith-filled because she uh, she did what the prophet asked her to do, which really was sounded kind of ridiculous, but it resulted in a a miracle. Bathsheba, I say, was resilient because she loved Uriah. Uriah was her handsome husband, her athletic, you know, her military husband, and he was murdered by the father of her first child. Uh, Resilient, persistent, the widow and the unjust judge, and that's a story of how you just don't give up. Naomi experienced the book of Ruth. I think she's so misunderstood. She left Bethlehem hungry with two sick children. And she says she left full and came back empty. It was the other way around. Ruth is courageous, incredibly courageous, to leave Moab. You know, her favorite food, her family, her friends. To go to Bethlehem as an alien, pretty courageous. And then Abigail, industrious. She was one gifted organizer leader. I mean everybody respected her. And then Tamar was a risk taker because what Tamar did would mean she was going to either be burned at the stake or she was going to have a baby. I mean that that's a pretty huge risk. And then gener- those, those are stories of these, you know, amazing women that we talk about and uh, hopefully there are other wither, other widows in scripture, but that was kind of a bookful right
2: there yeah, absolutely. Um, you say that we can be conformed by our past, restricted by our loss, or we can be transformed and changed. We can be shackled or crushed by our past, or remade, remixed, and renewed. Explain how we can begin to transform after the kind of tra- tragic life events. Uh, that leave us in an unexpected position, but with a life uh, to be lived ahead?
3: Well, first of all, you have to see that God loves you and he has a bigger plan. If you don't grasp that, you're going to hibernate or hide out or hand out. You're going to do things that aren't healthy. So you've got to grasp that God loves you and does have a plan for you. Psalm 139, from the time that you were formed, he had a plan for every day, not just the married days, not just the happy days. And then the second thing is I say resist being self-focused because our culture just emphasizes that and says, how do you feel, what do you want, what's good for you? And that means you make poor decisions, you connect with the wrong people for the wrong reasons, and then resisting that self-focus, you look around and you see, okay, What's going on around me? Who else has these same struggles? And basically from that is what you might say catapulted me into training these young widows in other countries and other continents where they're so much poorer and have so much greater need. Now, I'm not saying I'm an example for anyone else. I'm just saying that's what God needed for me to do. But I know throughout Scripture he says it's not all about you. It's about people around you, and in your great need and your great hurt, you're going to comfort other people, you're going to have empathy with them, God's going to show you ways to come alongside them, and you're going to know for sure that you're not alone.
2: Uh, Any advice for recent uh, widows who might be listening today?
3: Yes, I would say, first of all, it's not going to be you 're not going to feel like you do now forever, and I understand that it 's numb and I understand that after that first year, numb starts to wear off, and you want numb back because then the reality uh, mm-hmm. the reality comes around you but i I do say that even though you may feel that it 's hard you 've lost seventy five percent of your friendship network, you may not know how to connect with under other believers. It's really you and God to take those tiny steps to step out of your comfort zone, to do the things in your new life as a single. And when you take that little step, God pays attention, and he blesses you, he comforts you, and he shows you the next step, which may not be quite so
2: tiny. Well, the book is uh, certainly worth reading. Whether or not you are widowed, if you are are. In community, this is an excellent opportunity to see what the Bible has to say about these women, uh, their tragic circumstances, and how they responded. Not alone, 11 inspiring stories of courageous widows from the Bible. And again, if you'd like to learn more about Widow Connection, I would encourage you to do that as well. Miriam, thank you so much for talking with us today. I enjoyed it. Thanks for inviting me on. Thank you. Bye-bye. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ. Well.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, about six minutes after five o'clock. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Rachel Gresler. She's a research fellow in economics, budget and entitlements. We're going to talk about the delay of the rollout of the GOP tax plan that was expected from the House today. They've pushed it off till tomorrow and it sounds like, well, that might not even be the right day. Next week, the Senate plans on revealing their version of tax reform. But we'll talk with uh, uh, Rachel about what we might expect in the coming days. Well, every Democrat in the Senate has an opportunity to stand for religious liberty this week and a vote to confirm a nominee for a federal appeals court. That's what Senator Ted Cruz said on Monday, but only three Democrats did. They crossed over on Tuesday afternoon to vote to confirm Notre Dame law professor Amy Coney Barrett as a federal appeals court judge. We talked about her late last week and earlier this week. The Senate voted to confirm Barrett by a vote of 55 to 43. The three Democrats who backed her were Joe Donnelly of Indiana, Tim Kaine of Virginia, and Joe. Uh, mansion of West Virginia. Donnelly seeks reelection in Barrett's home state, by the way. Well, Ted Cruz had challenged Democrats to support Barrett, President Trump's pick for the Seventh U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, who had faced sharp questioning from Democrats for her Catholic faith. I do think we're seeing a test, but it's not a test of the nominees. It is a test of the United States Senate, Cruz said at a press conference uh, earlier this week at the Capitol, also featuring eight other senators among supporters of Barrett's confirmation. Well, noting, uh, not voting rather were Democrats Claire McCaskill of Missouri, whose husband is in intensive care with a heart condition, and Bob Menendez of New Jersey. Uh, uh, senator who is on trial on corruption charges. Senator Dianne Feinstein, another Senate Democrat, said questioned Barrett about her Catholic faith at a Judiciary Committee hearing in September. The dogma lives loudly within you, and that's th- that's a concern, Feinstein said, who is Jewish at the hearing. Cruz said the Democratic Party is not the same party it was when President John F. Kennedy, a Democrat who faced his own doubters because if he was Catholic, ran for office. The current party, the Texas Republican said, is more secular and happily embraces atheists, end quote. Well, the Cruz Baptist recalled a time when legal barriers were put in front of Catholics. We were seeing a reemergence of that same hostility to the Catholic Church, he said, adding, and today in this Senate, we have seen repeatedly nominees grilled not for their qualifications, not for their record, but for their faith. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell criticized President Obama's choice of judges. President Obama said on a number of occasions that he wanted judges Uh, who had empathy for parties to legal disputes. Well, the problem with that is if you're not the party for whom the judge has empathy, you're in uh, for a pretty rough ride. Well, McConnell himself a Baptist said Trump picks judges who interpret laws as they are written. Well, Barrett, he added, has the right to profess her faith in this country, but knows not to let her religious beliefs sway her decision as a judge. Senator Chuck Grassley, a chairman of the Judiciary Committee, said the questioning from Democrats went too far. Quoting Feinstein's dogma line, he said the comment was inappropriate. I want to express my sincere hope that my colleagues' behaviors won't discourage religious Americans from seeking public office and committing to public service, Grassley, also a Baptist, said. At least 15 of the Senate's 46 Democrats identify themselves as Catholic, according to a Wikipedia entry. They include Dick Durbin of Illinois, who also questioned the role of Barrett's faith. Joshua McGa- McCraig, uh, president of the Catholic Bar Association, which supports Catholic attorneys, says his heart sank when he was watching the September 6th hearing. I saw a country in which my children, who are being raised Catholic, may be disqualified from participating in the civic life of their beloved nation for being faithful to that religious tradition. The line of uh, questioning of Barrett was an an attack on anyone who has faith," he added. Senator Mike Lee said Barrett's religious beliefs have nothing to do with being a judge. In this setting, they were—they uh, weren't just asking, "Are you a Catholic?" Lee said. They were asking, "Do you actually believe that stuff? Do you actually believe the doctrine of your church?" Lee, a Mormon, said the Democrats asked questions as if being religious was a problem. Penny Young, Nance who's chief executive officer and president of Concerned Women for America, an organization that promotes and protects biblical values and constitutional principles, thanked GOP senators for standing with uh, women of faith. The Christian dogma that a few find appalling embodies the best of humanity, Nance said. It calls us to love others as we do ourselves, to speak uh, for those who can't speak for themselves, to feed the hungry. Mark Renzi, who's senior counsel for the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, also spoke. Other Republican senators defending Barrett and religious liberty at the press conference were John Cornyn of uh, Texas, a member of the uh, Church of Christ or Churches of Christ, Todd Young of Indiana, a Protestant, Orrin Hatch of Utah, a Mormon, Jim Inhofe of Oklahoma, a Presbyterian, and James Lankford uh, of Oklahoma, a Baptist. Feinstein defended herself on the 17th of September on CNN's State of the Nation, saying she thought Catholicism is a great religion, but that Barrett's past statements were worrisome. She's a professor, which is fine, but all uh, we have to look at are her writings, and in her writings she makes some statements which are questionable, the California Democrats said. She also said she couldn't recall the direct quote from Barrett that worried her, but paraphrased the law professor as saying a Catholic judge cannot be independent. Feinstein may have been referring to an article on Catholicism, Judges and Capital Cases that Barrett, born in 1972, co wrote as a law student. The Judicial Crisis Network, an organization dedicated to promoting limited government, launched a a predominantly online advertising campaign against what it called Feinstein's uh, religious litmus test. The six-figure ad campaign, which started in September, lasted about 10 days. This is going to be known as Feinstein's folly, Carrie Severino, chief counsel and policy director of Judicial Crisis Network, said at the time. Her line of questioning reeked of no Catholics need apply, while ignoring Professor Barrett's stellar qualifications, experience, fierce commitment to defending the Constitution. Severino went on to say that Feinstein was fundamentally at odds with our Constitution our constitutional commitment to religious freedom, not to mention politically tone deaf. Uh, By the way, the uh, now judge uh, did in Judge Barrett did, in fact, get the highest rating from the Bar National Bar Association. Well, I didn't have a chance to mention it at the time, but Army Sergeant Bo Bergdahl unexpectedly took to the stand at his sentencing hearing on Monday, choked up several times as he apologized to service members who were wounded in the year long hunt to save him. Bergdahl said, my words can't take away what the people have been through. He was the, uh, the first witness for the defense who hadn't previously made it known that Bergdahl would address the court. It was his most extensive remarks uh, to the court yet. Under questioning by his own attorneys, he also gave a lengthy description of his brutal five years of captivity by Taliban allies. Now, keep in mind, he's not appealing to a jury, but rather to a judge. He gave an unsworn statement, meaning that the judge will consider it, but Bergdahl won't be cross-examined by prosecutors. Earlier, the wife of a soldier who was shot in the head during a search mission Bergdahl, for Bergdahl in Afghanistan he delivered an emotional testimony tear rather she did tearing up as she described him as no longer being able to play with her children, how they couldn't even hold hands anymore. Shannon Allen, the final witness for the prosecutors, said National Guard Master Sergeant Mark Allen was unable to speak, uses a wheelchair and needs help with everyday tasks. He's not able to reach out for her or talk to her, she said, pausing to take a deep breath as she referred to the brain injuries that affected her interactions uh, with him and he with their daughters, um, their daughters by or daughter singular uh, rather was an infant when he was wounded in 2009 after being ambushed by insurgents. She's now nine and Mark Allen is in his mid 30s. He's never had a chance to really play with her or help coach her sports or ask about her day. Bergdahl faces a maximum sentence of life in prison after pleading guilty to desertion and misbehavior before the enemy. He was held by Taliban allies for five years after he left his remote uh, post in Afghanistan in 2009. Before the injury, Allen's husband was an outdoorsman who was very loud and outgoing, she said. He loved playing outside with his son from a previous relationship. Mark Allen's wife said that he can smile, make eye contact and sometimes make a thumbs up. But he has little communication beyond that. Prosecutors showed a video of Shannon Allen and a home care nurse going through their routine of rolling his limp body onto a sling to get him out of bed and into a wheelchair every day. He lost me as a wife, essentially, because instead of being his wife, I'm his caregiver, she said. I mean, we can't even hold hands. Well, it went on from there, and the trial will Continue. The judge in the sentencing hearing, Army Colonel Jeffrey Nance, also ruled Monday that uh, President Trump's uh, scathing criticism of Bergdahl won't prevent the soldier from receiving a fair hearing. Bergdahl said he uh, tried to escape more than a dozen times from his Taliban captors where he was caged, kept in the dark, uh, darkness and beaten before President Obama brought him home in 2014 in a swap for five Taliban prisoners at Guantanamo Bay. The judge said the court has been directly affected um, has not been directly affected by Trump's remarks, nor would the comments cause a reasonable member of the public to have doubts about the fairness of the military justice system. He had to consider both questions in deciding on whether actual or apparent unlawful command influence was interfering in that case. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Nineteen minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Facebook on Monday increased its previous estimate of the number of Americans who may have viewed Russian-created ads and content. Facebook now estimates that from the summer of 2015 to the summer of 2017, some 80,000 Russian-generated posts were viewed by as many as 126 million people. Well, the news comes about as uh, Facebook is in the midst of rolling out its new ad system, it's going to now require political advertisers to verify their identity. It was also reported that Google-owned YouTube had been used by Russians to propagate messages via at least 1,100 political videos posted since 2015. That's totaling about 43 hours of content. These videos were not the that popular, as only 3% received more than 5,000 views. Well, the bigger question, which honestly is impossible to answer at this point, is just how influential or how much impact these uh, Russian ads had. They might have been viewed by 126 million people, but that's highly unlikely given that the count is of page impressions, not eyeballs or attention. The ads are being described as targeting polarizing hot button issues like immigration, gun rights, which are obviously uh, not new political issues. Generally, most people's uh, votes are influenced by an array of issues, but loyalty to party is still the leading determining factor in how someone is going to decide to vote. So just how much influence did the Russians have, at least in this area? Speaking of Facebook and YouTube, another question seemingly ignored by the mainstream media is this. What was the Russians intent? What seems clear? Clear is that the ads were not intended to promote either candidate. Rather, the purpose was to sow distrust among the American people in our political and electoral system. The Russians uh, uh, had little... Uh, uh uh control over who was sitting in the white house but they did have control over the perception of the rank and file american facebook and youtube viewer finally it should come as a surprise to no one that the russians would be trying to impact us election this problem has been going on for generations now it's quite simply naive to assume that this election was the first time russians attempted this time of uh, this type of election uh meddling or that they were more successful this time around than in the past but the uh, investigation, and Facebook's effort to remedy the problem uh, continue. Well, this past weekend, the Wall Street Journal published what um, many consider to be the most important op-ed of the 21st century due to its sensitive nature. Americans rarely hear about the subject, but they should. Suzanne Venker writing on the article by James Toronto, which was entitled The Politization of Motherhood, centers on an interview with a psychoanalyst, Erica Cosimer, whose new book, Being There, uh, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters, makes the oh-so-obvious yet controversial argument that babies need their mothers. I know, wow, there's a whole book on it. As Cosimer says in a video about the book, mothers are critically important to children in the first three years of life. Uh, It impacts their emotional well-being. Well, for Daring to write such a book, Casimir has received the inevitable backlash after all it's taboo enough to suggest parents should i don 't know stay home or should be the primary caregivers if not the full time caregivers It's even more taboo to suggest that a uh, parent be mom why because popular orthodoxy insists that sexes are interchangeable that's what the gender equality crowd believes, and it's what uh what they want everyone else to believe now if you don't agree with it um and uh and Most people, I would imagine, listening here today don't. You'll be treated as a pariah. uh, NPR um, told Toronto um, that she she, uh, was rejected wholesale, particularly in the New York uh, Times and by New York uh, liberals, because that is not the accepted view in the 21st century. Well, addressing the effects of maternal absence is difficult enough on its own, but it's impossible when, as uh, Toronto points out, uh, those who oppose it, those who... um, as we all know, dominate uh, the mainstream, uh, won't even acknowledge the problem. Well, Cosima did manage to get a spot on Good Morning America, but prior to the interview, host Laura Spencer made it very clear uh, to Cosima that she didn't like her book and didn't believe in its premise. That's just the way you want to start out an interview. Well, of course, she didn't. Uh, Morning television is dominated by female producers and journalists, many of whom are married with kids, and as uh, one... um, Uh, Bernard Goldberg uh, wrote in Bias, those gals got uh, dog in the fight, so it's not necessarily an objective uh, interview. Nonetheless, it uh, once again points out the challenge of those, and it's not, uh, I suppose, for every uh, mother, but for those who believe that it is their primary responsibility, for those who are full-time moms, and there was an interesting piece in the New York Times about the fact that uh, full-time moms were really draining the economy, um, there's not much regard for the contribution that's made in establishing and raising well-rounded, secure, wonderful young people. And I wanted to take the opportunity to say thank you to those moms who have made that their priority. Not every mom does or can, and I'm not suggesting that by complimenting those who do that others should be frowned upon. But I did want to take the opportunity, given that the whole idea is such a um, an aberration these days, to acknowledge my high regard for those. In fact, that was my... That was my desire in life, was to be a stay-at-home mom raising really great kids. I didn't have that opportunity, but for those of you who do and uh, have done it, kudos. Well, in other news, the FBI said on Monday that all its previously withheld files on the John F. Kennedy assassination have been authorized for release with limited redactions to protect the identities of individuals who helped investigators probing his death. Now, it's, it's amazing to me that after, what, 30 years, 25 years, That we had to wait till the day that they were supposed to be released to get a, what, 10-day extension on what's been sitting around for decades. By law, all government documents related to the assassination were to be released on Thursday. But just before the release, President Trump said he had no choice but to agree to the requests from the CIA, FBI, and other agencies To continue withholding some of those documents to protect national security and individual identities. Again, a bit late to the party, it would seem. Later that uh, night, rather, the National Archives did put a hefty cache online. It plans to release all remaining documents in the coming weeks, plural. Uh, The limited redactions relate to individuals who provided information during the course of the investigation and whose lives may be at risk if they are publicly identified. That's a quote from Susan McKee, the FBI spokeswoman. Well, every effort is being made to lift the remaining redactions going forward as these uh, as those personal safety concerns are balanced with a goal of maximum transparency. So for those of you who are waiting for the other shoe to drop the rest of the information, apparently that. Um, has uh, been approved and will be released at some point in the next um, several weeks. Well, the microchip is about the size of a grain of rice and usually inserted in the webbing between the thumb and the forefinger, using a needle the same thickness as used in body piercing. It feels, says insertable technology expert Kayla Hefferman, like getting a drip. Once the needle is removed, the incision heals in a few days, and the microchip remains, allowing the wearer to open doors with the brush of a hand provided they only wish to access one particular place. Well, under the skin, they're saying that um, insertable microchips could unlock the future, and volunteers in Melbourne have uh, had microchips inserted for three months designed to unlock doors, carry out other tasks. And the question they're asking is, will will they be of any use? Now, I know for those of us who are familiar with the scriptures, this immediately sends up red flags. I wanted to bring you up to date on the latest commercially available insertable microchips are only large enough to hold one access code or and a small uh, amount of other information so the days of replacing an entire wallet or keychain with a tiny computer under the skin is not yet upon us but who knows how quickly it will be the future is coming they go on to say in the guardian but it's not in a rush Ten volunteers received, uh, received this microchip at an Australian center for the moving image in Melbourne on Wednesday to mark the launch of Paws Fest, a technology and culture festival now in its 18th year. Their chips were preloaded with, three day, uh, with a three-day pass to the festival. And we're programmed to unlock the door to their homes, the gym or workplace or potentially to function as their public transport pass. Now, we know how the story will go. This is extremely convenient and it would uh, free one up from having to carry uh, stuff that could be lost, stolen or hacked. Uh, and everyone will agree that this is the best thing since, well, sliced bread which we no longer slice ourselves. When the festival is held in four months' time, the volunteers will take part in a panel at uh, with Hefferman to talk about what, what they found the chips uh, to be useful, annoying, whatever. Hefferman has had one microchip between um, her thumb and forefinger for almost 18 months, which she uses to unlock her front door. She got another on the outer edge of her uh, other hand last November to access her office at Melbourne University. She is doing a PhD on the applications of insertable technology and decided to get a chip after a year spent listening to people wax lyrical about the convenience of never having to carry their keys. And isn't convenience the thing that ultimately will lead us down the path that we may come to regret? Hefferman says, if I want, I can just walk out without any keys. My key is in my hand so I can forget it. She means literally in her hand, which is handy because I have locked myself out before. And who doesn't want that kind of convenience? One might wonder. She goes on to say some people use it to unlock their phones or their computers. Some have modified their cars and one person, even uh, their motorbike. So it's just uh, only access uh, accessible to their house, but it's access to their vehicle and uh, to turn it on, obviously that requires uh, quite a bit of microelectronics and physical mechanical work, and that's not accessible for everyone. But that is the direction that the technology is heading. I know that as I've read uh, portions of scripture that make reference to these kinds of uh, possibilities, it seemed like it, how could this even be in it? You had to strain your imagination to try to imagine how how might this happen. Uh, Today, we see precisely how the technology is moving in concert with what the scriptures say. And it's, um, I guess, both terrifying and fascinating to watch all at the same time. Oh, by the way, as the media have once again reported, the economy surprisingly grew at a 3% pace in the third quarter, despite the impact of three major hurricanes. The question is, has the U.S. economy finally left its 2% growth rut? The answer seems to be yes, GDP growth of 3.1% in the second quarter. 3% 3% in the third quarter is the fastest since 2014's two quarter spurt of 4.6% and 5.2%, respectively. 31 minutes after 5 o'clock, up next, we're going to talk about the uh, GOP tax plan with Rachel Gressler. So stay with us.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the anticipation for the GOP tax plan is going to have to wait another day. Members of the House Ways and Means Committee have decided to release their plans tomorrow. Well, the announcement comes after members have stated there are still several issues of disagreement. That might be something of an understatement. But here to talk about what we might expect tomorrow or perhaps the day after that. Rachel Gresler is a research fellow in economics, budget and entitlements at the Heritage Foundation. Hey, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, the anticipation was that this plan was going to be rolled out, uh, the House version of it, or for that matter, the Senate version of it. Uh, Today, that has since been postponed. Um, What's the explanation for that, and and what's going to happen next? Yes. So originally
4: we thought we'd hear today, and then last night they announced that it would be postponed until tomorrow, and now it's looking maybe 50-50. Is it going to be tomorrow, or could it maybe be as late as Friday? Um, So I think the problem here is just that, is always when all the interests come in and you're nailing down the specific things, you've got to get rid of a lot of deductions in the code to make this a truly pro-growth plan that reduces the tax rates, and nobody wants to lose their deductions. And so you have a lot of interest groups, you have senators from high-tech states, fighting to keep in things like the state and local tax deduction and just trying to make some compromises or move forward on those I think is what's holding this package
2: up. Mm-hmm. Well it certainly foreshadows the difficulties that await the uh, the party of Reagan moving forward to this uh, what they hope will be something of a signature uh, move for the uh, for the Republicans. Now the clock is ticking. But what what time parameters are there? I know there there's the political consideration that the midterm elections are coming, and Republicans mm-hmm. really don't have a major issue to their name. Uh, the Democrats uh, are are looking to overtake the House and perhaps gain some seats in the Senate. Is there a, a clock ticking beyond the political consideration?
4: I think it's primarily primarily the political consideration, and so. Pre- the administration, President Trump, have promised we're going to get something done by the end of the year on this. Republicans have not been successful in getting things done, particularly in healthcare, And mm-hmm. so this is, you know, kind of their signature item that they need to have something that they can present to the American people. Um, so I think they really just feel like they need to get something done in this year. And, yes, you get into next year and it's an election year with the midterms and it's harder for people to take votes that might upset their constituents. So if we get it done this year, I think there's a huge advantage to that. And also because you're talking about a tax bill and we run uh, our taxes on a calendar year basis. So it, it makes it a lot easier if you're doing this before the end of the year to say, you know, the changes will go into effect next year. You don't have to deal with whether or not they're going to be retroactive and, you know, businesses making decisions. Should I make this big investment in 2017 versus 2018? They're big. Um, big implications, particularly on the business side of whether mm-hmm. or not you do that. So,
2: yeah, yeah. Well, the delays come despite the fact that Republicans for about a half a decade have spent uh, time readying themselves for this very moment. We know the Ways and Means Committee for mm-hmm. years has held tax hearings and working groups. Um, it, it is a difficult uh, a task, but it's, I think, somewhat surprising to those who were convinced that, yes, if the Republicans take the majority of the House, the Senate, they have the White House. We're going to see some movement on this. And the expectation was decisions had already been made. Is this evidence of a moving mm-hmm. landscape or how do you explain the fact that there isn't something concrete already?
4: I think there have been concrete ideas all along and you can get a bunch of conservatives to agree to those concrete ideas. If you had presented the framework of this tax package, any point along in history, you'd have almost unanimous consent among those conservatives um, that, yes, this is what we're supposed to do. And honestly, a lot of Democrats, everything that's being done here, getting rid of deductions, reducing rates, that has a lot of support. The problem is when you actually get a comprehensive package and we haven't had this since nineteen eighty six. It's been over three decades now. When you get that in there and then there are some people that realize, oh, the stuff they're talking about getting rid of, that's really gonna affect my constituents. You know, I might I'm gonna hold back and if they don't keep this one provision or this other one you know, I need to fight for that and I can't vote for this package. And so I think that's what it's coming down to is that they're losing a couple of lawmakers that they really need to have their vote for this. And so they're having to look at some compromises to be able to get the whole package,
2: you know, past the number of votes they need. Now, the process may be something of a mystery to most of us. I know the bills uh, started, uh, details of the bill rather, started leaking out on uh, on Tuesday when Speaker Ryan briefed some conservative leaders on the text of the finalized bill that may come as something of a surprise to rank and file Americans the expectation would be that all members are involved in this process and they're all they're tweaking it as a much larger group but we're talking about committee mm-hmm. work that's being done uh so is it fair to say that most members of the house don't really know what's in this uh, they have some ideas some elements what the priorities are but it's not really clear to most members what this uh bill will actually be
4: I think that is fair to say. I mean, you have hundreds of members there. And so definitely the key committee members and key leadership members know what's going into this. And they're the ones that are hammering things out. And then you have a couple of people that are the ones saying we might not vote for this bill. And those are the others that are probably in the room right now making the compromises and the decisions before the final package gets rolled out. But yeah, yeah. very, you know, a small number yeah.
2: of you, people have knowledge. You touched on this um, earlier, but what are some of the sticking points that we, Uh, might expect will um, cause future delays in uh, this rollout.
4: So the the state and local tax deduction is one big issue here, and it it sounds like they were keeping the property tax deduction component of this, but maybe they're going to make it a credit or something, Mm -hmm. um, but getting rid of the fact that you can deduct your income and sales taxes. So that would be gone, but maybe there's going to be some property tax component left in. Um, There are some other issues around tax savings, and are they going to cap the amount of savings for and if they do so, is it only for a particular income group? Um, some minor changes, you know, they're looking at potentially a surtax on um, universities' endowment or some changes to life insurance treatment, how that is, you know, whether or not we tax certain fringe benefits at work that we're currently not taxing. Basically, what they're trying to do now is, you know, get some more revenue when, when they've had to make concessions on things like allowing the property tax deduction, which I think they're doing that. Um, it's not a good policy, but it looks like it's going that direction. Then you have a huge revenue loss and you have to say, okay, well, what are we going to now take out in addition? Because we need to come up with this hundreds of billions of dollars of revenue that we just lost by adding something back in. So I think that's one of the sticking points. Also, just where you put, you know, you have three rates that they're talking about, mm-hmm. maybe even four. Fourth rate is another issue that is thrown in there. Um, But what what income levels do you um, change between a 12 percent, a 25 percent, a 35 percent, and potentially a higher? Um, bracket. I think it's pretty set that, you know, they all know they want to double the standard deduction, essentially creating a big 0% bracket. Um, I don't know how much the child tax credit will go up, but that's something that's definitely going up and they're probably having to tinker with that as kind of a a lever when they make these other changes. Okay, how much can we increase the child tax deduction, child tax credit? Um, So there's a lot of a lot of moving parts going on there.
2: Oh, absolutely! In fact, just hearing you uh, recall that <laughs> makes my head spin just a bit. Uh, these are just the, the the titles and the outline, but the the actual work it has to be staggering. Uh, any indication about the four hundred one k plans? Um, I know the president and uh, Mr. Brady sort of went back and forth on that. They've had some conversations this last week. Um, uh, has there been any indication of what direction they're likely to go there?
4: You know, I haven't heard anything real recently other than hearing maybe there will be a cap, and so trying to not target, to still maintain the provision that allows middle-income families to save, but maybe saying once you make over a certain amount of money, you can't put away as much in retirement. This is one of the things that's really very unfortunate for me to see happening because we shouldn't be double-taxing any type of savings. And mm-hmm. so the fact that we give people a certain amount that they can put away any year, You know, it should be, it should really be unlimited. You're going to tax that money when it comes out in the future. So it's already a double tax. Now we're talking about doing something that's going to make people save less. That's not really how we get the economy to grow more. We want people to be savings. so that savings goes towards investment and helps increase productivity which turns to higher wages for workers so it's unfortunate that they're trying to use this as a way to you know claw back some revenue in the yeah. near term
2: yeah well the uh, the delay in the rollout is one thing and even if that goes smoothly in the next few days uh, the tax bill has a pretty long road uh, as I mentioned the Senate tax bill is expected to be released next Wednesday it's likely to have some um, significant differences from the House version although I understand they're trying to talk with one another. So this is going to be a lengthy process, reconciling those two versions, uh, Mm -hmm. satisfying just the Republicans on the House side is going to be something of a challenge. So this is going to be a process that's going to take a while.
4: It is, but they're trying to get a vote by Thanksgiving is what what they've been talking about. And the administration has said, I want this to be America's Christmas present. is a new tax reform package. So, you know, it does take time. It takes more than days, but considering the amount of changes that will be made. It is a relatively short period of time, if you're talking about a month or two, that we could have a new tax code.
2: Yeah. Senator Corker suggested that uh, resolving these issues might drag them on into uh, uh, New Year's Eve. So that season <laughs> seems to be what they're, what they're yes. pointing to. It's quite a feat. And it will be interesting to see the rollout and then uh, what the Senate comes up with and how this moves forward. It will.
4: And hopefully we'll have something that's better than the current
2: system. Yeah, let's hope so. Hey, Rachel Gresler, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Again, Rachel is a research fellow in economics, budget, and entitlements at the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show in just a few moments. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll talk about what the Office of Management and Budget says about who's paying our taxes in light of the back and forth that's, uh, that's going on in Washington at this moment. So we'll, uh, we'll get into that in just a moment you're listening as i said to the georgine rice show
1: you're listening to the georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq
2: Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, if you listen to my conversation with Rachel uh, Gresler in our last uh, segment, you know, we were talking about the uh, the rollout of the GOP tax plan. We're talking about the House. The Senate is expected to roll out their version sometime midweek next week. Uh, The Office of Management and Budget uh, reminds us, though, to put this into context, that the top 20 percent of um, uh, earners in our country pay 95 percent of the taxes the middle class pays single digits so if you put put us all together in groups uh, those are the numbers the office of management and budget have confirmed now paul bedard writing for washington examiner points out that any tax cut for middle income earners will also provide a benefit a benefit rather for those further up the income scale including the top 20 percent who now pay 95 percent of all income taxes, according to the director of the Office and of Management and Budget. In explaining the complicated tax system, the administration and congressional Republicans are trying to simplify um, Mick Mulvaney played a role of professor at Georgetown University um, last Wednesday night, and dished the, um, the, the numbers and the impact of a middle class tax cut. It came in a discussion before students of the school's Institute of Politics and Public Service at the McCourt School of Public Policy, and the discussion was directed by Kathy Koch, a tax expert and former Senate aide. Well, when the two tuned to the, I um, rather turned to the taxes of the rich pay. Mulvaney declared the top twenty percent of folks who file a tax return, the top twenty percent pay ninety five percent of the taxes, uh, which makes it clear that um, you know any tax cut the middle income earners uh, will also provide. A benefit to those in the higher-up uh, tax brackets as well. Well, the Office of Management and Budget later cited internal data to the Washington Examiner that said that the top 20% of people who pay the uh, income taxes uh, account for 94.8% of those in 2016. Now, that appears to be a jump from just a few years ago. In 2015, the Wall Street Journal reported that the top 20% of income earners paid 84% of income taxes. So, from 84 in uh, 2015 to 94.8% in 2016. Well, Mulvaney explained if you break the income tax universe into what we call quintiles, so equal-sized 20% columns, the first two columns, the first quintile, and the lower quintile don't pay any taxes at all. In fact, they net positive. We pay them when they file a tax return. That middle quintile, which you uh, might describe, some people do, as middle class, uh, pays an effective rate in the low single digits And all of the taxes are paid by folks in the top two quintiles. And that last quintile pays almost fully 95 percent of taxes. Well, people always ask, um, uh, why do you want uh, to give a tax cut to the rich? Well, here's the math. We have a progressive tax system, which means that if you make a million dollars and I make fifty thousand dollars, we both pay the exact same rate on the first uh, let's say, $20,000. And then from the next $20,000 up to my $50,000 and her next $20,000 to her next $50,000, we pay the same. I think it's 12% of 15%. I, uh, he couldn't remember that uh, specifically. But then uh, she goes on to pay her higher tax rate on the stuff that she makes, and I stop. So uh, on that f- on up, the tax rate goes up. Well, if you want to give me, the middle class, a cut, take my 15% down to, say, 10%, and that gives the middle class a cut. Guess who else benefits from that? She does. She pays uh, the same rate on the way up. Uh, up the bracket. So a portion of the taxes they pay, the rich pay the same rate that you and I do, but they have a larger amount. So on what exceeds what I make, they pay more. Well, his conclusion, you could sit there and do nothing but lower the rates on the middle class and all other things being equal. Uh, you're giving the rich a tax cut. So it's somewhat misleading to suggest that... Um, the, the rich are singled out for a tax cut when, in fact, the the progressive system means that when the lower or middle uh, rung or quintile, if you will, gets a tax cut, those who pay um, more of the taxes will automatically get it as well. So that may be clear as mud, but at least it was an explanation to try to uh, explain um, what the outcome will likely be in an effort to provide a tax cut, a reduction in taxes for the middle class. Well, can you believe it? The Olympic flame arrived in South Korea on Wednesday, where it uh, will be passed throughout the country by thousands of torchbearers on a 100-day journey to the opening ceremony of the 2018 Winter Olympics. And let's see, Pyeongchang, I don't think I pronounced that correctly, but South Korea figure skating prospect Yoo Young, uh, she kicked off the 2018 kilometer or 1,253 mile trip uh, from... uh, uh, let's see, it's Incheon on Wednesday. Well, the organizers have uh, designated 7,500 torchbearers to carry the Olympic flame, which arrives at the Linshan International Airport after a handover ceremony in Athens on Tuesday. Retired Olympic figure, sk- figure skating champion Kim Yuna, who is one of the country's most popular sports personalities, joined South Korean Prime Minister Lee Nak-yeon in igniting the flame to the ceremonial cauldron at the airport to mark the start of the Olympic torches relay. Can you believe it? We're just that close to the Winter Games. The Olympic flame last touched the country 30 years ago when the 1988 Summer Olympics were held in the capital of Seoul. Preparations for the February 9th through the 25th Games are being uh, held amid tension over North Korea's nuclear weapons and missile tests. There are also concerns over the huge costs for hosting the Games and maintaining facilities that may have little use once the party leaves town. And that is um, not uncommon. That is quite often the case. South Korean President Moon Jae-in who's urged the the North to participate in next year's Olympics, said in a speech to lawmakers on Wednesday that the Games are a golden opportunity to strengthen peace on the Korean Peninsula. Well, good luck with that. Moon went on to say ensuring the success of the Pyeongchang Winter Olympics and the Paralympics that are 100 days away is a national task. Uh, although a North Korean figure skating pair has qualified for the Games, it's uncertain whether... Uh, Pyongyang would allow the skaters to compete in that city, a ski resort town just 80 kilometers south of the heavily armed inter-Korean uh, border. North Korea uh, boycotted the 1988 Summer Olympics in South Korea's capital, Seoul, and they've ignored Seoul's proposal to dialogue in recent months as it accelerated its nuclear and missile development programs. Through the, uh, re- uh, the delay routes, the Olympic flame will be um, uh, carried in a specifically designated torch, which will be guarded closely to ensure that the light does not go out after passing through a uh, Chan on Wednesday, the flames going to be carried through the Southern resort Island of, well, I can't pronounce it on Thursday and Friday before re-entering the mainland. It will pass through the capital of Seoul in January. Organizers hope that the torch relay will generate excitement for the games, which uh, have failed to dominate conversation in a country experiencing political upheaval and distracted by the North Korean threat. So, the Winter Games coming up in February. They're going to be in South Korea, in Pyeongchang, if that's a good pronunciation. So, looking forward uh, to that. You can't uh, beat the Winter Olympic Games. Well, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Stephen Black. He is the author of Freedom Realized Finding Freedom from Homosexuality and Living a Life Free from Labels. Now, some would argue that that's not possible. Mr. Stephen, Mr. Black, rather, he uh, says that that is possible, and I happen to know personally uh, many who share that testimony. So we'll look forward to talking with him tomorrow. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering most of today's program, James Blind, for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program. And thank you for being a part of the Georgine Rice Show. Good night.
1: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show Podcast.